Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. Today, my guest is John Fordoulis. John is a scientist, remote sensing practitioner, aerospace engineer, and methodology designer. He was a specialist in small drone research fieldwork and training on the HI Odyssey 2025 project in Chad. John, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? I know. And I try and, <laughs> I try and keep these introductions as short as possible because I want to get to the questions. So there's lots more to you and I'll put it in the notes, but I sort of do like a minute or two just the base so that people know who they're dealing with. We're dealing with a specialist, i.e. Yeah. you today. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's probably a good good way to actually start because when people deal with me and, and it will lead into some of the questions, um, I'm a little bit like a one-stop shop. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not just a drone pilot. I'm not just a scientist. I'm not just pretty much. It's like getting four different people in one and, and four is, different specialists in one. <laughs> this is going to confuse us all. So we'll try and narrow it down to one speciality. No, yeah. we won't. We'll cover everything. So I'm delighted. I'm really happy to have you on the show. Um, you know, I your work in particular, it's so fascinating to me. So um, for my audience, I do actually send my guest questions so that they know what we're going to cover off. And um, I think we're sort of going to get stuck on the first and second one here today, but nevertheless. So tell us about uh, your career and uh, your company mobility robotics okay so, so pretty much my original career was in business publishing and marketing so i had a publication it was called mobility magazine it was the trade magazine in the mobile or cell phone sector and i'd run that for uh, more than 10 years and i was like a leader in terms of teaching the sector about different things they needed to learn so i had a a really good experience with technology. And before that, I was in product management and consumer electronics as well for a big corporation. So um, originally marketing degree, lots of time in business management, publishing strategy. Um, and that's probably one of the main, main things about my publication. It was as a strategic industry publication. It wasn't a consumer publication. Got burnt out doing that. It was, you know, owning your own publication is not easy. Your own business is not easy. And I pretty much played with a lot of the big boys, you know, from myself as an owner operator. So that took a lot for me in 10 years. So I got a bit burnt out. Um, towards the last few years of the magazine, I was doing volunteer archaeology projects in the Greek islands. My dad's originally from a small Greek island. So it was like a pilgrimage back in time to where my ancestry came from. Um, one thing, another thing that I'm probably good at is in building collaborations. And that's what happened. I built collaborations there with government officials in charge of archaeology, and we came up with some volunteer archaeology projects, pretty much with no money, and we made things happen. And that's how the drones started about. We were excavating different sites, and there were walls and architectural features that were too big to fit into photos. So it was almost like necessity being the mother, in, mother of invention. And that's how I got into drones. Originally, I started using just poles with cameras on the end of a pole, I then started using kites with cameras and they had their deficiencies. Like if there was no wind, it was no good. If it was too much wind, they were a bit shaky. And then about nine or nine and a half years ago, I just got onto some engineering forums without any prior experience regarding drones and just looked at how to make a drone yourself. And there might've been a hundred wires. And if I'd soldered one wire wrong, it would have taken off 
I would have flipped over on takeoff and I probably would have given up. But thankfully, I somehow got everything right and my first home-built drone actually flew. And that launched a whole new career. And what happened was as I got a bit burnt out from the publishing business, I took a bit of, bit of a sabbatical and I was doing archaeology more full-on in summer yeah. in the Greek islands. And then through a friend of a friend, I got poached from there to work at the University in, of Bristol in academia. And one of the questions was, well, you know, what did you, you do your PhD in regarding drones? And I said, well, I don't have a PhD. And then the other question was, was where did you do your undergraduate engineering degree? I said, well, I didn't have one. And then the other question was, how many drones have you built from scratch? I said, probably about 40. I said, okay, that's enough to get you in. <laughs> So, and that is a new career. <laughs> and that was a new career. So pretty much while I was there, I worked definitely five years on and off at the university. The first project was using drones for mapping hazardous environments for radioactive contamination. So we did field work near Fukushima in Japan where the nuclear accident was. And that was a bit of an eye opener. And that was also like from a humanitarian land release perspective. People wanted to move back into their homes. But, you know, walking along with a Gaga counter wasn't easy. So using drones was a good way to extend the, the, the sensing capabilities on the ground and on roofs, in forests, et cetera, et cetera. So that got me a start into drones in hazardous environments. And that was in sort of early 2014. And then another project came up. There was a call where the university applied was to use drones in humanitarian mine action. And that was a two-year project that I worked on. I was the, the drone lead for that. And that got me into the humanitarian mine action sector. I was never really, and again, getting back to the collaboration, building and understanding, I was never, well, technically I wasn't an academic. I didn't have a PhD, but I was always curious. And I was always like somebody said, you're a bit of a born scientist because you're always doing experiments and you're testing things more from a practical perspective. And I wasn't happy just working in academia. I reached out to the sector and I got into the field, got to minefields to actually find out what's really needed in the real world rather than what people in, in their offices think are needed. And that set me up with some connections. I moved back home after that to Australia and started working as a consultancy. So the Mobility Magazine was morphed into Mobility Robotics. So it was the same company I had for more than a decade. And I had a specialist project out of the UK with one of the space organisations called RAL Space, together with Cranfield University. We did a scoping study in Cambodia. They wanted to see how they could port Mars rovers and add sensors onto them to work in minefields to try and help speed up the process. Because, you know, currently the cleanup would take many centuries to clean up the landmines in place today. And there are new issues. A lot of them are improvised landmines. Um, so really, even if we stopped the planting of explosive threats today, it would still take many centuries to clean up what's in place. A lot of the stuff's still there from 40 or 50 years ago. If you look in Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, the stuff's been there for 40 and 50 years. And there's no real end game about when the places are going to be totally clear. So that's a really long way of explaining where I'm at today. So after that, project. Um, I'd been networking with a lot of the humanitarian organisations. So the call came, and this leads to part of the second question, call came from the Belgian Department of Foreign Affairs. 
and there's a an organization a humanitarian organization called handicap international or humanity and inclusion they they rebranded a lot of the people who knew them in their home country in france still call them handicap international and then outside of that the the new name of humanity inclusion is the one they go by so I'd, I'd met them at a conference in 2016 in France that I went, I was presenting when I was still uh, in academia uh, about how drones can help in mine action in, in helping survey and clean up minefields. And I met the people there and funnily enough, it was in a city in Lyon in France and there were restrictions about flying. And I was the only guy at the, the conference that had like, well, I had, and I still have like CAA accreditation out of the UK, because a lot of the work I did was out of the UK. And even with that, dealing with the French regulator in the in the built up area, there were too many restrictions. We needed parachutes and all sorts of stuff to add to existing equipment to do the demos at the conference. So I said, okay, let's scrap the full on demos at the conference. Why don't you come to Bristol? I've got a 200 acre farm there that I used with lock gates. We can set up whatever scenarios we want there. We've got full approval. So that led to a workshop that I had with HI, HR is a good abbreviation for them. Um, so some of the technical specialists and their program and director came uh, and we had a, in early 17, we had a three day workshop and we set up scenarios at the farm and did flying to show to them in a practical way how drones can make a difference. So it was always in touch with them. This call came along. Um, it wasn't just like as a contractor, I pretty much, for the call, they said, okay, there's an innovation call. What can we include in, in that call? What, could, what should we do with drones? Um, there were some other parts, but my, my area was the drones. So I said, okay, well, these are the different work packages that are possible. They said, okay, cool, right. What do you think would make a difference and how to innovate? So I pretty much wrote the strategy and wrote the work packages that was submitted to the donor um, so there wasn't really competing people because at that stage it wasn't just, it, in a way, I wasn't doing training. I wasn't a drone trainer, but just to make that package easier to digest, I said, okay, I'll do the training. I'll do the field testing. I'll do the science. So I wrote all those work packages and was, and that gets back to the one-stop shop, you know, example. Um, so what happened the donor liked the idea. They thought we could make a difference and they thought it was a cause worth supporting. So the project was approved. So the work packages that I wrote for myself then became reality. And over time, we even expanded some of those packages because I got into the field and established relationships with people who worked in the field. So we went to even more, more stressful or more demanding environments than originally planned. We were originally gonna do two fairly straightforward field campaigns. In the end, I did four really intense field campaigns plus an, an, an initial campaign. So the scope was more than doubled. And even the last campaigns, we were camping inside actual minefields for like 10 days at a time. That wasn't part of the scope. Just getting there is risky, let alone living inside a minefield and working at night around the minefield. So that's how the scope increased over time. And we were lucky that the donor was flexible that we had opportunities in the ground. They let us seize those opportunities and we achieved some world firsts because of that. So that's a, a long convoluted 
explanation about sort of parts one and two in the question. Look, it's fascinating. And just for um, our audience, I, I saw your presentation at the World of Drones and Robotics Congress in Brisbane. And that's, of course, where I, I, I thought, now I must speak to you about this. Um, yes. Chad, and in particularly Northern Chad, is heavily contaminated with landmines and other um, unexploded bombs, largely for the conflict between Libya and Chad in 1979 and to 1987. So um, other countries, as you've mentioned, in the world, um, I lived in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, for a, a brief spell um, in 1979, 1980. And the joke was, uh, come to Mtali and get bombed. Um, and this was, I was wearing a T-shirt, not very funny at the time, because there were a lot of un, um, landmines, you know, just yeah. a, a hill across from my house where I lived. And, you know, at night you can hear these landmines going off. It's either a dog being killed or a child being injured. And it's devastating the, um, you know, the damage these mines do. So, um, Talking about you just living in a um, in an area in a tent in 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 the desert now. Talk to us about this. I mean, you know, how how did you do this? Did you did you have a crew of people helping you? How how did the whole thing play out? Yeah, definitely. Well, we didn't even have tents. Um, generally, in Chad, in the summer, you you camp under the stars because it's quite hot in the day, and even at night, you might cover yourself up from two a.m. with a blanket till you know sunrise. Or often, I was awake soon after 2am 2, 2 anyway. Um, where The main place where we did this intense research was there was an abandoned military base. So there was almost like um, like some portable like uh, hangers, in, or not portable, like some, some metal hangers. So we parked the vehicles in there and that gave us shelter and we just had our camp stretches where we just um, slept. But the thing is they were open at both ends and we had many, many sandstorms. So it was like being in a sandblaster in there, like in a washing machine. One of the, the local staff was worried about me one night at about 2 a.m. We were all woken up. And it was like it's, the sandstorms are so strong enough to blow your stretcher over. That's how, how strong they are. One of them was really worried. One of the staff was really worried. They said, John, we want to lock you in one of the vehicles to keep you safe. Like people in northern Chad, you know, some of these people are tribesmen. You know, they're used to that. They, they grow up with that. But for me, being from Sydney, I'm not as resilient as some of those people. Um, thankfully, it was all okay. And they were actually surprised at how resilient I was. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite difficult. And, and just the, the terrain and the environment, like the extreme heat in summer, it's more than 50 degrees in the middle of the day. And it's really hot. It's really like dry heat. Um, the sandstorms were definitely an issue. Um, the scorpions, like in our camp, little camp where the little gas camp stove was, we found scorpions there many mornings and the local people killed them, the, the scorpions. Um, you know, we, we, there were tracks from hyenas and jackals and stuff at night we'd seen around the camp. Um, so just being there before you even factor in the explosive hazards is just a risk. It's also where most of the places I work are a red zone, um, do not travel. Um, it's funny looking at different countries like Australia, pretty much the whole of Chad is a do not travel zone for Australia. The UK, the Southern part is okay but the North is do not travel. And then from France, if you look at parts of the, like the, the main base, there's a place called Fayard is orange, but the rest is red. So we're, we're in a do not travel zone before we even factor in. And that's because of things like the hazards, the roads don't exist. I don't know what the definition there of a road is, but we're just driving over sand everywhere we go. Um, you know, people have been lost in the desert 
and 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 died of you know thirst. Um, and then you factor in explosive hazards. So because of all that, we need a team of at least ten to support me and support the work. The, but based on safety, there's a minimum of two vehicles required. Often we we took three or four. Um, we had to have a medic with us because we're six hours into the desert. So imagine the analogy of the, the capital of Chad in Jemena is like Sydney, say. You fly into Jemena, the capital, and then you fly to the north, which is like the equivalent of Alice Springs. Then we travelled anything from six hours to two days into the desert to where we worked from the remote equivalent to an Alice Springs. So the main place where we camped was about six hours from the base. So we were six hours from any sort of help. That's why we had to take a medic with us as well. So we have, we also had a government chaperone with us, which was quite good because one of the first missions we went there, we found people were illegally removing some of the landmines. So we didn't know if they were people who were selling landmines or the local population who were just using the explosives. So that could have been another danger. So having a government chaperone called in the military to secure the area originally before we went there and, and investigate. And it looked quite amateurish. So we think it was probably just, you know, it wasn't organized removal of landmines. It was just some people probably using the explosives for something. And how so, were they removing it? Surely not with drones. They were, no, no. Well, the drones, the drones actually help pinpoint where they are. Well, I mean, but they're yeah. not using that technology. Yeah. What they were doing is in some cases, and this is how I got started as well, in some cases due to erosion, Normally landmines are buried because that's how they work. They're a hidden killer. Um, due to erosion, the, the sandstorms or sometimes where I was, it rains probably one month of the year consistently. So either being washed away or sandstorms or whatever other causes of erosion there may have been. Sometimes you see parts of mine rows exposed. So you might see three or four mines exposed. Then you might have 500 that are buried in, in the same line. So often seeing some of the exposed ones and, and the nature of the conflict often determines how you work as well. So the Libyan forces who laid the mines laid them in a linear pattern in most cases. So if you see one here and one there, you can guess that there's a line or the line continues. The line sometimes stops, but it's a good guess. So what the people stealing the landmines would have done is, is seen a couple on the surface and then they would have taken a risk of how to get there either that way or that way and then gently walk along. And, and they could have maybe had a stick where you prod a little bit first too because the small mines take maybe 7 to 10 kilos to set them off. The bigger mines, the anti-tank mines, probably take 100 kilos to set them off. So a little stick prodding. And that's how a lot of poor countries started in cleaning up mines 20 or 30 years ago. They didn't have metal detectors back then. I met a guy in Chad, one of our... Chaperone, well, our chaperone on the last mission said he was employed in the government mine action service because after the conflict, he just went with no tools, just with a stick, just digging up mines, risking his life every day. Um, so that's how they would have been stealing them. They would have seen some signs of a couple visible on the surface from erosion. They would have followed that pattern. And then once you get onto the pattern, they're spaced fairly evenly, around about four metres apart, those ones. So if they got... They saw a couple on the surface. If they somehow got to that line, then they could have just went every form. Well, they would have used a stick or some way to make sure they didn't blow themselves up. And 
the, the fresh ones we found that, that they probably would have been removed within months of when we started at that location. There was probably about 30 of them removed and each of those had six kilos of explosives. So that's a lot of explosives just for maybe, you know, a couple of people to maybe remove. So that gets back to the question of what it requires for support teams. Plus also to, you know, it's a sensitive area. People can use mines for, for bad, for nefarious purposes. So to have a chaperone with us as a humanitarian organisation to help make sure that we, we stick to all the rules, but also to help us when we need support as well. Like I said, they called the military in to investigate. Maybe there were people hidden over the hills that were digging them up, waiting to see what would happen. So um, it's good. And also to sometimes they're sensitive in terms of just sometimes there are different factions within the communities and whatnot. There are rebels that, that actually have active conflicts at times in Northern Chad. So just to be sweet with the government and to be all official and above board, it's, it's important to have their support. So that's, that's why having a chaperone from the government, having our medic, we had a couple of people from the NGO. We always had to have a bomb disposal specialist because he assessed the risk. He gave me guidance. So what we do, a lot of the work was at night. So we'd scope out in the day when, where to stand and fly. And then we'd go, and also just scoping out the roads. How do you get to the minefield without driving over a minefield at night when you're working? So we definitely needed a bomb disposal specialist. Normally he had an assistant. We had some survey people who helped document where, land, where minefields are. Um, obviously we need one driver at least per vehicle. So if we had three or four vehicles, we have three or four drivers. You know, it, it's like almost not quite rally driving skills, but you need specific desert driving skills. So there were local people who were our drivers. So a minimum of 10 people, between 10 and 15 people were needed each mission into the field to support those operations. Okay, so let's take, let's take like one, like one mission, talk, talk me through. So how many kilometres would the drone um, have covered? And then um, second to that question is talk to us like the technology that the drones use for the audience so that how are you finding these mines? Okay, so there's, there's two main, two main techniques. The first technique is just using off the shelf consumer camera drones that you can buy just from a consumer electronics Store. So if you go out today and buy one for a couple of thousand dollars. So what part of the innovation there was the frugal innovation. It was trying to use existing technology and not reinvent the wheel, not give into the sales pitch of people trying to send, sell you $10,000 or $20,000 drones. So just off the shelf camera drones. And, and the innovation that we came up with and the breakthrough we came up with there is applied use of those. And that's where me understanding the limits of pretty much most drones, knowing how we can get the biggest bang for our buck. So, and we won an award and from the European Union, we, 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 won, we won a 1 million euro prize. And a lot of that submission was explaining how the frugal approach is how we actually innovated. We didn't reinvent the wheel. We didn't have the latest whiz bang thing with whatever on it. We actually gained traction using um, just off the shelf drone. So that's the first part. And, and how you work with that is obviously it doesn't see subsurface and landmines are always originally, well, generally originally planted subsurface. So the main thing there was working with the, the field operators and understanding are there any, any other indicators, are there secondary indicators of buried landmines? 
So I spent a lot of time interviewing the field person, not the office personnel, the guys, the bomb disposal guys who were out in the field. And I went to many field sites to see for myself. And I started noticing patterns. Oh, there's a, there's a, like you said, animals sometimes set off landmines. So the tragedy from an animal often provides evidence. So one of the best forms of evidence, they're all, all different, and we call them ground sign indicators. But one of the, the, the most consistent we found was in a place that was heavily contaminated is the dromedaire or the camels were setting off the landmines. So using an off-the-shelf consumer camera drone, you can find the location. So without walking, because obviously too, you don't want to get too close. And if you, if you do want to get close, you've got to wear full body armor and have ambulances and a whole bunch of logistics. Because if something happens to you six hours from nowhere or in the middle of nowhere, you have to deal with that on the spot. So often in, in, from the survey perspective and an, an inspection perspective, you want to work from outside of the hazard area, but you want to have a good look of, at what's there. So using off-the-shelf camera drones for inspection, pretty much I've been aware from the UK and I've done commercial drone work, all the main normal commercial drone work for inspecting pipe, you know, pipes or smokestacks, for example. I've worked in archaeology. So I know all the common commercial uses and scientific uses of drones. I actually did a master's thesis while I was at Bristol in optimizing small drones for use in science and commercial applications and humanitarian op applications. So using known techniques, but applying them for use in these remote areas um, was a it sounds easy, but actually putting all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together was the big breakthrough, that holistic approach. So in that example, we'd take photos of where, say, animal accidents would have taken place or sometimes vehicle, but let's just stick to animals because we could be here for hours talking about yeah. different examples. So if we see an animal accident here, an animal accident here, and an animal accident a bit further on, and they seem to be in a bit of a line that increases the probability significantly that that's where the mine row was, just based on knowledge of the conflict and their, and their methodology and how they were laid. So at a very simple level, just taking three photos and most consumer camera drones now have the GPS, they tag the photo. So you have a photo of this accident location, smack bang in the middle of that photo is a GPS coordinate. It's not extremely precise, but it's good enough to be within QE of drawing a line in GIS software or in Google Earth where you plot those points. That's a very simple but effective way. Now, that is based on actually having an evidence point. Not seeing anything means no decision. You can't just assume that because there's no accident, there's no hidden killer underneath. So it doesn't work everywhere, but where it can work, it's ex extremely huge bang for your buck. That's the simple level. Then what you can do the same off-the-shelf consumer camera drones, you can program them in the in using autopilot software and they can fly in patterns. And flying in those patterns, they might take 500, 1,000 photos that are all overlapped. And then there's software we could stitch them together and come up with a really high resolution map, like a very high resolution Google Earth. And that's even better because that's totally geo-referenced. You can look at it in Google Earth or more sophisticated GIS software. And GIS is geographic information systems. It's, it's pretty much geospatial software that you use to make maps. So again, with a $2,000 consumer electronics store off the shelf drone, we might map, and, and there's an example 
that I was working on last night, actually, where it's about a one and a half kilometer stretch where there's probably 20 animal accidents that are all little dots. And if you join the dots, you can come up with a pretty good assumption that that's where the mine row is. So that's at a simple level. Um, from a more advanced level, we achieved the world first in October 2019 using thermal cameras from drones to find not actually see the, the mine directly, but what happens is where a mine is buried, depending on the time of day or night, a cold patch comes up above it. So that's an, an anomaly. So what we found was we could reliably, at least in Chad, more work needs to happen in other countries as well, at least where we were in Chad, and I found the best time to work was at night. So we could reliably see the dots of where the mines were buried in patterns at using thermal cameras. And this was a huge breakthrough because there's been more than 30 years of speculation. There's been, I, I wrote an article for the, the, well, the Journal of Conventional Weapons Destruction, which is like the industry journal for the mine action sector. And I reviewed more than 50 academic papers. None of them, well, only one out of 50 got to a field trial and this was before drones and nothing really progressed past there. And that shows that just getting into the field is so difficult that you know, people from academia or other organizations don't even have risk assessments approved to go and do the field work that it needs to validate. So that was a, a breakthrough using techniques that were speculated about, but taking current drones. And in that case, we proved that not just, and sometimes there are sandpit tests where they, you know, have half a dozen surrogate mines set up. We proved more than 2000 mines were found using that technique. So it was a fully validated, and, and I actually had another peer review article that just came out last, uh, just before Christmas. And it was saying the emphasis of that was proof. Okay, forget about the speculation, here's proof. This is what we did, this is how we did it, this is how it worked. We can't guarantee it works everywhere, but this is a stepping stone Almost my analogy was, was it was like the first sort of stepping foot on the, the first time stepping foot on the moon. It's Hopefully, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and congratulations on your paper. So just taking it a step back, um, I mean, I read that you could cover up to 750 kilometres in two hours of searching. I, I think that was a typo from one of the PR people from oh, okay. the humanitarian organisation. Um, 750 kilometers, we're using small drones. And that's another thing that, that needs clarification. When we first met with people from Chad who had never seen drones before, when we told them drones, they, and, and we, we met them and I, and I showed them a little white drone that's this big that fits in the palm of my hands. They said, we thought it was like a big drone that would take up the whole room. It would be like an airplane. Like they were thinking yeah. military drones. Yeah. Even using the word drone, Back five or six years ago, I was hesitant in using the word drone because of potential connotations with military equipment. But right now, most consumers know the word drone. So just going with what people know. Mm. So, so in that case, um, sometimes there's a little bit of confusion. So what we're using, and that's why I tried to call them small drones to, to, to get them down to the small, the small size that you can hold in your hand. So um, sometimes there are a few little discrepancies in, in what people say about areas covered and flight times and whatnot. But the bottom line is we can cover a lot of ground. I'll give you an example. Um, I was using small quadcopters uh, in Chad. 
Um, if I wanted better efficiency, I, I could have used fixed wing small drones, but a lot of what I was doing was more precision hovering stuff. And a lot of what I was doing was proof of concept and getting results at one height, another height, another height, another height. So in terms of accuracy of sensing of cameras and sensors and accuracy of flying, it was easier for me just to use multi-rotor aircraft instead of fixed wing. Um, I mapped an area of where I was talking about where the dense minefield were of 30 linear kilometers using, using quadcopters. It would have been much easier with fixed wing. So, um, and that took me because we couldn't operate every day. Some days there's sandstorms, you can't operate. Some days it's 50 degrees at 11 a.m. You can't operate. So it took me a couple of weeks and I mapped uh, 30 linear kilometers. So I mapped that whole area, which is probably a world first in mine action in, in scale because mine action is a very risk averse sector. So often they wait for proof before they, they jump in. They're not people to, to take big punts on technology because A, most organizations are charities operating. So there's never enough money to go around. And secondly, you know, they wanna risk things that don't work, A, because of you know, loss of resources, but B, maybe that it could be hazardous if they're not proven. So that's probably a proof of concept if I did it again, I'd do it with a fixed wing in probably four or five days instead of two weeks. But um, 30 linear kilometers is a pretty big task. And that was sort of surface optical imaging. So, so finding all those examples of the animal accidents, um, it was up to me in some cases, I, I came down to the resolution of where like the actual mines were on the surface. So I've got some maps that actually show the dots of the mines Obviously, there's a trade-off between height and resolution and efficiency. When you fly lower, you can cover less ground. Mm -hmm. So, um, getting back to the the short answer is, you can cover a lot of drone, a, a lot of ground with drones. There are different types of small drones that you can use depending on how much ground you want to cover. But the bottom line is also, I, I'll give you an example. There's one area in the place where the dense minefields existed that I mapped in a day. Um, the cleanup operations on the ground, the digging up using ground assets, people with metal detectors, etc. So that one area I mapped in a day took them a year to dig up. So, you yeah, know, the, there's no comparison in the scale yeah. of the work that you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So pretty much what I did while I was in Chad, I've probably prepared maps for the next five years of groundwork. Um, off, off, it's, it's obviously good and part of the the methodology proven is it's good to map a site before you start work, during you start work and after you start work, particularly from a risk assessment perspective, because after the work's finished on the ground, after all the landmines are dug up and destroyed, that land is handed back to the community. And if there's something that happens later on, you've got maps showing where the work took place and many different things. Like for example, you might have maps that take place during clearance operations, while mines are being dug up, maybe somebody might plant a mine back there. Some people have, you know, agendas in, in some of the countries, especially where there's like rebels, you know, disputing things with the government. So there might be an example of the area was handed back to the community and you've got evidence that it was clear, but then one single mine was, was placed back there to, to pretty much wreak havoc. Um, so it's good you know, not to just scope out new areas to work, but to also use drones for progress reporting and also completion reporting. Okay, so now if you, 
let's say you found you've mapped out the area of the drones um you handing over this information to ground resources how quickly do they get onto to start clearing the the mines that that's a really interesting question in some cases it takes years okay. because because ground resources are expensive the way and the simple i'll give you a quick overview about green there are three main ground resources that are used for technical survey or clearance technical survey Let's just call it clearance just for the layperson yeah. to, clear, to clear minefields. So they're, they're human assets. People generally, the most common tool is a metal detector. Yeah. They go very, very slowly. They might only move forward a few meters every day. And if they find one of the things that slows things down, if they find scrap metal there, they need to dig the false alarm. So that can take a really long time. So human assets with metal detectors, it's a really meticulous, slow process. The other sort of asset, animal assets, you can have like sniffer dogs or rats or even some others. I heard somebody talking about mongooses at some stage that sense where the buried object is. They're trained to sense the buried object and there are different operations around the world. The most common are sniffer dogs and rats. Um, so they're animal assets. Then the other is mechanical assets. So mechanical assets can range from there are machines called flail machines. What they do is they pretty much drag the top, say 15 centimeters of the ground, and they might have chains or they might have big spikes or they might have whatever. It's sort of like um, a big plow, a reinforced plow that pretty much plows the top maybe 15 centimeters of the ground. And what that'll do is it'll flick the landmines up to the surface or, or, or it'll set them off and destroy them. And there are other sort of mechanical assets too. Often. If you look in Southeast Asia, you need to clear the vegetation before you, because if somewhere has been left for 40 years, mm. it's all overgrown with weeds and bushes and whatever. So sometimes you even need mechanical assets to open up the area or people might go with like, even like clippers from the garden and just cut the grass a little bit by little bit. So um, those ground assets, and that, that's the main, the main breakthrough and the main value that the drones can help add is in helping to get better productivity from those ground assets. Because, because of safety, and, and I'm not even talking about safety, because I'm, I'm assuming safety takes place. There are procedures yeah. making sure things are taking place. So safety is not negotiable. What can be negotiable is coming up with better techniques to speed up the process and to get better productivity and to save costs. So in that regard, the drones help. Firstly, if we can, and, and the best example is to pinpoint where to start work. So I'll give you an example. There might be some animal carcasses somewhere in a location. Let's call it site A. So site A might have some animal carcasses there. What people will do, and there's a technique called non-technical survey. It's like a scoping view where the people doing that survey are not allowed to enter the hazardous area. So they have to stand back. So for example, and one of the questions was, how do we know about where the contaminant, or how do we, um, how do we, find sites to work at and generally if there's an accident the local community the local villages will know in chad a camel might be worth fifteen hundred dollars okay. that could be a year's income to a family mm -hmm. so they obviously know if one of their if, if one of their animals has an accident and then they report that back through the local community through the government etc cetera, etc cetera. so generally the local community is the first source of information about where accidents happen particularly. So assuming that there's been three camels killed in an area, site A, 
then a survey team, an observation team will go there. The local villager will probably take them sort of where they can see, maybe through binoculars or see from a distance where they happened. The team won't approach too close because they have no idea where the land mines or the roads start or finish. So they'll use the village's knowledge of where they think a safe area is. And what they'll do is they'll stand where they think is safe and then they'll project a geospatial polygon. Imagine drawing a polygon in Google Earth, for example, around where the suspected hazardous area is. And the first trigger is, I suppose, in that example, the animal carcasses and the animal deaths. That could be a huge area though. That could be a 500,000 square meter area because they can't get too close. So then what will happen is then the, the clearance teams will come along and then they'll make an assessment and they might open up some, some scoping lanes, maybe even a lane to where the animal is with um, metal detectors. And I've, there's another site, I'll give you an example. It took a week to open up a lane, a single lane with a metal detector that went about 300, 300 meters forward. And that was moving pretty quickly. Um, and then what they'll do is then they'll, they'll grid up that area. So that area, say for example, there might be in, in, the, in the animal carcass area, it might be an area of, I don't know, 600 meters long by 40 meters wide is where the mine rows are. So whatever that is, that might be, for round numbers, it might be 25,000 square meters of where the actual mine row is. But really the, the big area for safety that they suspect might be a million square meters. Yeah. So what they'll do is, in some cases, they'll deploy ground assets and a million square meters could take more than six months, depending on how many you've got. A team of 50 might do it, a team of 20 might take a year. A team of 100 might take three months. It depends yeah. on how many people you've got working. So in that example, they'll send ground assets to pretty much do a systematic blind search. They know that a trigger of the animal carcasses but they don't know how, how far out to start from and how far out to go. So that could be a million square meters and that could be for a million square meters, there's probably an average number in mine action from three to $10 Australian per square meter. So to cover a million square meters, just say a middle number of $5 a square meter, that could be $5 million to cover that area systematically blind search. Where the drones could help and, and it's, and also to the methodology needs proving because people don't accept methodology in mine action unless they go through the full risk assessment process and, and proof as well. The example with the drones could be, you scope out the, the animal accidents quite closely. You look around, can you see any signs of craters? Can you see any other evidence that helps give you an opinion one way or another or gives you a better assessment? So you scope out, and we were using little small camera drones, but also I picked the Zoom version mm -hmm. that pretty much you can get a Zoom version for $2,000 or a non-Zoom version for $2,000. It's the Zoom version I wanted because if you fly above there, you want to zoom in mm -hmm. and see, can you see any, any other evidence? So in that case, where the drones help is from a simple inspection or, or better from a cartography. If you come up with a map and you can draw a line where the accidents happened, that's, you, you, you call that a hot spot. On the ground, it's hard to see. Like, you know, if you've got something 300 metres away, it's hard to even see the patterns. Yeah. There's another site where there's a crater, a carcass, a vehicle. On the ground, it was hard to see that there are actually, and some drag marks where an old road used to exist. It was hard to see that pattern from ground level. From the air, it was clear as day. An old road was mined, and that's yeah. where the 
and it's happened. So how do drones help add value is what you do is you draw a line where your assumed hotspot is. And instead of doing the systematic million square meter ground asset search, you'll open up a couple of breaching lanes, go straight to that line, and then work from the inside outwards either side. And then once you start finding mines, you know that you need to work there anyway, because you have to try and, and remove the mines. But then you'll have, then the, the, the field, the bomb disposal guys will go, okay, what level of confidence do we know that there's no more? Do we work a buffer zone 50 metres out? And if we find nothing for 50 metres, do we say it's okay? Do we work 100 metres out? That's up to the bomb disposal guys. But what this methodology can give you is the inside out technique. Yeah. Where you start from the hot spot and that might mean in that sort of example, there's 25,000 square metres of where the mines exist. You might work an area of 100,000 square metres, including buffer, but it's 100,000 square metres is only 10% of a million square metres. Yeah. So you've saved, maybe you've got, it won't be a tenth, but maybe you've saved at least half the money. So that site might cost $2.5 million to render safe instead of $5 million. And it might take three months instead of six months or a year. Or getting back to your question about priorities and how soon sites are worked on, if there's 20 of these sites, maybe that area gets worked on in three years instead of 20 years because there's always a backlog of sites to work on. So that drone methodology, the inside out idea to pinpoint is, is way that can actually make a tangible difference. And we're talking about a tangible difference from a $2,000 consumer electronics store drone, plus a bit of software and some computers and obviously trainings needed. That's maybe one of the discussions for the later questions. But, you know, a $2,000 drone plus the training, you know, it's, it's, a lot, it's more than that with all the, you know, the capacity building. But just in that one site, that one site could justify the full drone program to be launched. Well, look, and I think the, the saving of human life isn't obvious. Like, yeah, that, that's a starting point. Why do you use a drone? Like, you know, someone walking with a metal detector and there's a good chance they can actually get blown up. And I'm sure they do get blown up as well. Yeah, they do, and that's that's why they have to wear body armor. There's medics, ambulances. It's it's all about risk mitigation, but it's still probably one of the most risky jobs in the world. No, I'm sure, and I don't think they're probably that well paid anyway. And Chad, like no. if you're doing ground resources, this is just something that you need to do. Exactly. So exactly. typically, how long? If you go to Chad, how long are you there for? Okay, so the first the first mission was more of a scoping and collaboration mission. So we'll just put that aside. The last four missions were more full on field missions. Um, the full-on field missions ran for generally about seven weeks. Sure. So I was in, in, and a lot of that is in the desert. You have meetings in the capital and, and whatnot, but, but a lot of that is in the field. And, and, and what I would do is, for example, I'd fly to the north to the desert. I might have done, for example, I, I had two levels of diploma uh, training courses that I wrote and delivered. So I might have done 10 days of training at the base in the remote location, the Alice Springs equivalent. And then I might have gone out into the field for 10 days, come back, done some more, gone to the capital, gone back, gone out into the field for another 10 days, et cetera, et cetera. So generally the time away from home from Australia was about seven weeks. And it's hard to get to because, you know, just to get to the capital is normally, you know, flying from Sydney, normally Sydney to Paris, normally overnight in Paris, have a bit of a sleep, then Paris to N'Djamena, 
than normally meetings in a few days in N'Djamena, then N'Djamena to Fayar, which is where the, the regional base is, and normally a few days there preparing them field and, and whatnot. Um, but even towards the end, the last two campaigns, there's a, a regional airline that stopped working. There was some, I don't know what the issues, financial issues or something. Um, so that meant two days overland from the capital just to the base before we even got to the field, which is really, really taxing and really, really exhausting. And we had to camp just out in under the stars during that two day overland journey just before even getting to the, the base to do the field work. So yeah, the, the short answer is generally seven-ish weeks is when the main field, field campaigns took place for. So have you been going like every year since your initial, um, just your scoping one? And I mean, obviously COVID would have impacted this again last year. Yeah, so the, the project, the Odyssey 2025 project started in October 2018 and finished officially in March 2020, which pretty much coincided with, with COVID is when the, the, the project finished. So I went five times to Chad over that year and a half period that the project ran. Um, and then in the, the last year of the project, I probably spent nearly half a year in the field in Chad. So that's, that's a lot like, okay, the, the people who live there are quite resilient, but for somebody from Sydney, six months in the field in the Sahara Desert is a pretty big call. So how did it affect you mentally, uh, you know, emotionally, physically? Like, did you, did you see some differences in yourself? Oh, definitely. Um, particularly the, over, the, the overland journeys were the ones that were the real ones that had a, a physical and mental impact because... Imagine this, I fly from Sydney to Paris, that's a day-ish, have a sleep and then catch the, and also the, the timing of the flights to N'Djamena are once a day and often didn't connect. So that was good in a way. I, I got to, to have a sleep in, you know, in, in a hotel near the airport in Paris. So Sydney to Paris is say 24-ish hours, have a bit of a sleep, have a shower, then depending on whether it's a direct flight to Chad or an indirect flight goes through Nigeria. So a direct flight's about seven hours. The one via Nigeria is about nine, nine and a half hours. So let's say, let's, let's say seven. So a day to get to Paris, half a day to get to N'Djamena, the capital of Chad. Then normally there's a bit of meetings and the, and the, the, the local flights are not every day either. But the last two missions, there were no local flights. So there's a few days in N'Djamena, then two days overland. So I've already done a day from Sydney, half day to N'Djamena, then two days. And you're just sitting in a, in a yeah. Land Cruiser troop carrier. Isn't it? The first, Bouncing. Yeah, the first couple of hours are on bitumen. The rest is just totally not, not road. It's totally sand. Bouncing along over sand dunes. It's, it's just, it's, it's total like, it's almost like a safari or like a, a rally in the, in the Sahara Desert. So then you, you drive maybe 10 hours the first day. And then for safety, generally, the, the transport is not allowed to, to drive at night. So you pull up stumps and camp normally outside like a little local school building, which is like a one-room building. You sleep outside for the night and then sunrise the next day. Again, maybe another eight hours, again, bouncing along. That's just to get to the base. So just to get to the place where you're going to deploy from is a day to Paris, half a day to Chad, in the capital for a couple of days, two days overland. 
So by then it's just like total exhaustion. Yeah, you're knackered by the time and now you have to start serious work and you, you actually need another holiday. Yeah, knackered before I even start work. Yeah. Physically, mentally. And also there's danger. The roads, yeah. there's accidents all the time on the roads. There's kidnappings on the roads. It's like even the food, we, we take a packed like picnic with us. The food doesn't agree with me. The water does. I've been sick from the food and water so many times. I've lost count. Um, and that's before. And then you've got to get there and then prepare all the equipment because who knows if the equipment's being moved. Generally, the equipment was locked up safely, but charge batteries, prepare equipment. And the internet is almost non-existent. And if you've got to do firmware updates of drones or cameras or sensors, it could take half a day just to download a firmware update. There's real, and it's not very user-friendly for offline environments. And where we work in the field is totally offline. We have no internet at all. So if you don't do a firmware update and you get into the field and it says, drone cannot work without a firmware update, you're screwed. Yeah. Um, I, I planned around that every time, but there was one example from DJI, one of their drones, you need to refresh the license every week. So if you're in the field for a week, you call, how are you going to refresh it? Yeah. Without, without internet, it will stop working. So in that example, we had to drive four hours to find a really weak 2G internet connection to refresh that license. That's totally user unfriendly. In future, that drone is a RTK Phantom that has some surveying advantages. In future, I'd really think seriously about purchasing that again yeah. because it's useless in an offline environment you cannot use it after a week being without pinging the server so these are all small things and yeah getting back to and then the pressure if something doesn't work in the field it's on me i've got 10 or 15 people supporting me i've driven six hours into the middle of nowhere and if something doesn't work it's on me yeah. so definitely the 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 physical and the mental because you're knackered before you start, and then you've got all the pressure of making the mission work. Like, okay, I've got people supporting for safety, but but these are not specialists who need to deliver from the drone's perspective. Yeah. So yeah, definitely towards the end, I was yeah, I, I was needing a, a a total total break from everything because it was just, and in a way, COVID gave me that break mm. because you don't really want to in a, in a in a developing country. You don't want to be in a developing country when there's COVID. No. But I pretty much got out. I came back on a military flight from the north. That was a, a bit of a band-aid to stop me having to. So I went and did the best field mission after all that, 10 days in a remote location, no internet, no anything, come back to the base. And then luckily the country director organised for the EU organized transport on a military flight back so it saved me two days over because i was exhausted so what i just said was just getting there then there was 10 days in the field of total exhaustion and i, I was living on three four hours a night maximum four hours a night sleep um waking up at 2 30 a.m to work at night going to, to bed at midnight after charging batteries so that military flight back to save me two days overland was a, a small it was a, yeah, it was like a whole, it's not a, you just look at it as like you've landed the jackpot. Someone's yeah. looking after me. Yeah. <laughs> and then COVID happened and thankfully what my priority was, I grabbed with both hands any opportunities to do field work. So the amount of field work that actually took place was about triple that that was written in the original proposal. And that's what I was thinking. This could be a once in a lifetime, a one-off, let's grab the field work to the maximum amount of work in the field that we can while like while in the field 
because just getting there is a drama. So because of that, there's probably a year or more than a year's worth of data to process and to analyze. So what happened was there was a small extension where um, there was some funding where I wrote some articles, some peer reviewed articles, and particularly that one proving after 30 years in the real world how small drones can find anomalies that indicate the location of buried mines. So in a way, I just totally collapsed when I came back to, to, to Australia. Um, COVID was good. COVID was almost like, you know, our borders are officially closed at the moment. Yeah. So, so that was a good way to keep me, you know, in Australia, not running around too much, recharge the batteries. Also to process the data, it took me more than a month just to get the, the first stage of, like I said, there could be a year in actual data analysis, particularly from the scientific side of things, you know, coming up with a cause and effect. So, you know, there, there were the first couple of articles since then written, peer reviewed in the sector. And, and that's important too, because the strategy there was not to go with an academic journal because people working in mine action don't read academic journal, journals, but the journal that we went with is actually read at all levels from senior management through to the field operatives, the bomb disposal guys. So that part of dissemination and advocacy and sharing lessons learned was also important. There's no point coming up with the world first and keeping it to ourselves. Yeah. So, that, so that's why that was happening. So getting back to exhaustion and, and whatever, COVID in a way helped me for the first little while. It's been a bit of a barrier now because even operations are still a little bit sort of clarity about what's happening. Even in Chad now, the operations travel shut down, I think last week for a whole week, the whole of Chad. Um, so in a way now, COVID is a bit of a, a handbrake to getting back into the field. But um, the first little bit from March probably till September helped us and helped me, help force me to go through all the data and share the lessons learned rather than going back out into the field and capturing more. Well, look, I mean, I suppose who else in the world is doing this? Are you the only person or do you know of other people? Because read the lessons learned, other people could be doing the same stuff and, you know, making a difference in other countries. Yeah, I think one of the main things, and I don't say it, but a few people have said it, is they think that I'm probably number one in the world at doing this. Um, and the benefits being I'm always adapting and improvising. So if I was just a drone pilot, I wouldn't be trying to do a lot of the science. And another part of the project, it was like doing two missions in one, is we set up a field lab where we buried about 40 different landmines at different depths. And I had a thermal camera capturing the imagery every minute, 24 hours a day automatically to work out more of the science of when do you fly? Do you fly daytime, nighttime? We found that when it was windy in the desert, the anomalies weren't obvious. So it was like, don't fly when it's windy, fly at night. Um, it was better if we were to fly in the day, it was better when it, when it was cloudy versus sunny. So in a way, I'm, again, that one-stop shop. I'm the scientist, I'm the drone operator. And, and also to speaking, and I, know, I network with a lot of the major operators, the major charities working in the mine action, because again, I want me as a resource to be shared across the whole sector to help the whole world, not just to help one country or yeah. one organization. So um, speaking to them, one of the other main ones who wants to start trying this in three other countries, my first question was, and they did a, a trial in one country. And the first question was, did you, did you do it at night? And they said, no, 
we've got to go step by step. We don't have the, the skills to do it at night yet. Where, you know, I come with those ready-made instructor level drone skills. So I can do that. I can do the science. I could, and adapt. Like sometimes you find things in the field that you have to adapt in an offline environment. You can't come back and look at a forum online or you can't come back and email somebody. Um, so that's one thing, a point of difference for me is having all those multidisciplinary skills. I'm like a specialist in, in maybe four different areas to make things happen in the field. So um, have, the, you, have you thought of getting them to all come to Australia, take them to Alice Springs, <laughs> bury the mines and do the, all the work and train all these people for huge amounts of money so it makes your <laughs> worth your while? <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, they're all charities, so they don't have... Oh, great. <laughs> and also bringing them all to Australia. Um, actually, what I want to do, part of, part of an extension, like a, a, a slight bolt-on to the project is, um, I would like to actually go out to a desert in Australia and bury stuff for myself. Um, I've been doing tests in New South Wales on the coast where I've made up sand pits and, and whatnot. And that's okay. You can pre-test to a level. But I actually want to go out into the desert in Australia. I was thinking ideally somewhere I could drive to rather than Alice Springs so I could more easily take all my equipment. And also, too, with border closures because of COVID, if I could go to the New South Wales desert, that's somewhere where I'd actually like to bury things for maybe a week or two. And, and set up that test kit and run it 24 hours a day. And, and that's a really, really, you know, there, there's probably 500,000 data points that will get captured doing that. So definitely thought of that. But generally the people in, in Mine Action and the humanitarian organisations, it's better if I go to them rather than they come to me. Yeah. So there is talk. One of the, one of the, the major organisations, a different one to the one I've been working with, is talking about setting up, an international drone team where they have a specialist team that goes from country to country. The ideal scenario would be for me to go and do field work with them looking over my shoulder and maybe giving them a bit of on their job training at the same time. They should go to do the basic, like the, the same sort of REPL type training, which is generally the basics. It's, they're just the basics in terms of safety. Then do the applied field training with me and how to do the mapping and the sensing and the more advanced stuff. Um, so that might be a scenario. In Chad, what we did is we, we, we taught 10 local people how to, to, to operate drones. I wrote level one and level two certificate levels of training. So level one was like an REPL and level two was like cartography, data analysis, mapping. It was more the applied use for in the field of how to make management decisions out of, out of the drone data. So I wrote to, and, and the government has no regulations in Chad for drones. So we dealt with the Mine Action Authority to accredit to certificate levels. So everybody got a diploma. No. So in that case, there's two options. You can train an international team or you can train and capacity build local teams. Locals so, better. Yeah, well, it just depends. Um, in many cases, local is better. But in some cases, like, for example, it depends on how much work there is. If there isn't enough work for the local team, maybe the expats might travel across three different countries or ideally train a local team that travels across their region is probably the ultimate. Yeah. Um, that's all about sort of, you know, grants available and funding available from donors and whatnot. So the first steps along the way are proof. You have to prove something is worthwhile. Then after the proof, you come up with the cost benefit. And then because pretty much 
all the humanitarian organizations around the world are heavily dependent on on government donors like the US government, the UK government, yeah. the German government, the EU. So the the big government donors who fund programs. So you have to prove to them, you have to justify to them that something is worthwhile. But in the example I gave before, and I can put my, my hand on my heart and say the inside out technique is something that really has a lot of scope and potential because just one significant site using the inside out technique could justify the whole drone program for the next three years. Yeah. It's just a matter of people you know, taking that first step and for donors. Another example, um, and again, I learned from the field. And one of the other reasons why I got the contract and probably not many other people were capable of delivering the contract is there are a lot of pieces to the jigsaw puzzle in mine actions, knowing the context, how things work. It's not just, oh, I just go fly drones. My, my, I taught my niece at five years of age how to fly a drone. She can, she's eight now. She can fly a drone. Yeah. It's not just about flying drones. It's, it's seeing how the drones fit in the survey process, seeing, seeing how the drones fit in the, in the clearance process, how the drones fit in the information management process, how the drones fit in terms of decision-making. The biggest thing is decision-making. So all that takes years. The non-technical survey, that scoping from the edges example I gave you, I went and did a 10-day course in Germany to learn how to do that. So I had training from the best in the world of how to do that. Um, I've been liaising. I've been to many field visits in many different countries. Weeks and weeks of discussions with and brainstorming with bomb disposal experts. So it's, it's distilling all that knowledge and that's part of a needs analysis. It's distilling it into applied usage in the field. And that's, yeah. that's the, the main difference that I have. I have that applied. Now, it's an extremely tiny, tiny niche. I guess the same methodology could be used in hazardous environments in any. could be in a uranium mine, you know, especially with radiation mapping experience um, or whatever. But right now, it seems as like I've found my niche and, and that niche needs me as well. So, John, it's, it's, yeah. listen, I think you and I can sit here talking for another two hours. It's, it's, absolutely, fa it's absolutely fascinating, your work. Um, I think we're going to have a follow-up podcast with you um, <laughs> no late problem. in the year to see what else you're doing. Look, I, I congratulate you. I, I think it's, you know, I, I have such admiration for the work that, uh, you know, I'm South African, so I'm well aware of the risks in Africa. It's a brutal continent. And um, I think it was Princess Diana, um, from memory that became an ambassador for landmines, these unexploded devices many, many years ago that yes. really drew attention to um, the cause. And I think she she got a lot of money and in, invested in it. So in closing, if anyone wants to get hold of you, where can they get reach out to you? Probably the best way is my website. And there's lots of peer-reviewed material there. So my website's a bit of a resource for learning as well. So it's it's MR, like mobility robotics. So MR dash au for australia.com so mr dash au.com i'm going to put that in the show notes anyway i'll put your, you. your link to linkedin people will probably reach out to you there thank you i, I can't thank you enough for our time and uh, to your listeners uh, please reach out to john and we'll speak to you again in two weeks time thank you bye-bye Uh, well.